This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Welcome to the Liverpool.com podcast. The boss man, Christian Walsh, is out this week, so I've been left in the driver's seat, which I think we're all worried about. Um, I'm Ollie Conley, and alongside me are Liverpool.com staff writers, Dan Morgan and Joel Rabinovitz. Gentlemen, how are we doing? Very good, so thank you. After last night. Joel, <laughs> <laughs> you still down? Oh, it's frustrating. Yeah, I'll be over it by the weekend, but... I, Honestly, what I want to know is, is are either of you going to try and sell me Bitcoin? Because you're both verified on Twitter. <laughs> That's what I want to know. Good, good job we couldn't tweet last night after the game. I know, thank, thank the Lord. Look, the, last night was the first time in my long and storied career that on deadline I've had a colleague say he needs to take a five-minute break. And during <laughs> a, a dead rubber phase of the season, he's like, I just need five minutes to clear my head. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's the back, it's the back-to-back nature of it. It was the Burnley one, and then this one. And I know it's so easy to sit here now and dismiss the whole points record and say, "Oh, it doesn't matter. They've won the title." And it, it sort of doesn't, but it's more that you knew they were capable of it. I think it's almost easier to accept the games like the City four-nil and the Watford defeat because Liverpool were just battered those days and they deserved to lose. Whereas the Burnley one, and especially last night when they're just, yeah, the, by far the better team. They have the chances. And I was just saying to you before we went live here, Ollie, or I think it was Kai maybe, um, I don't remember Arsenal actually creating a chance of their own meet until the, the Maitland-Niles one late on where he scuffs it wide. Their two shots on target are literally given to them. So I think that's why it feels like Liverpool have sort of been the architects of their own downfall twice in a row there, um, which is why it probably feels more frustrating than it should in the circumstances. It's a tough one. I think we won't focus too much on the performance last night as, as we both wrote last last night after the game. It's tough to legislate for a game in which the two best players that their position in the world make two once-in-a-season errors within 12 minutes of one another. It's just not going to happen again. So it's hard to draw massive takeaways schematically, tactically, however you want to look at it. But there is an interesting stuff in terms of the, the context uh, in terms of the totality of the season. And I think the points record is something we should at least start with because the online buzz is fervent. Liverpool fans appear to be disappointed en masse, uh, whether that's just the vocal minority, I'm not sure. Uh, I'll start with you, Dan. Should Liverpool fans be disappointed? Should the team be disappointed that they are now going to miss out on the points record? And just in terms of the way they've played since the restart? I think the important thing to say, first and foremost, is that everybody has the right to an individual opinion on this. And I don't just mean in a generic sense. I think where I'm sort of going with this is that there are a lot of people who invest in Liverpool Football Club as their life. And there are a lot of people in the world who Liverpool Football Club winning games of football means everything to them. And for them not to do that can can affect people's lives. It's it's It might sound extreme, but it's true. So when we look at it in that context, Liverpool haven't played well for about five months now. No one's seen Liverpool win games of football consistently for around that period. So I don't think it's on anyone to tell anybody else how to judge their own sort of feelings around now. And, And that needs to be taken also with the fact that we're not watching football in a conventional conventional normal normal sense too. So I think all of this is kind of having this weird impact on people's opinion and people's opinion around the league title and people's opinion around how Liverpool are playing. Personally, for me, um, it 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 is sort of the most normal of the irregular pattern that is this this life that we're living now in terms of watching and consuming football you know for for Sunes to, to say on Sky last night for example that this wasn't out of the blue in 82-83 when it was Paisley's last season sort of gives you a little bit more a bit more reassurance that, that this isn't just to do with this crazy time that we're living in you know teams can try and persevere and and have the best will in the world. But when they enter a stage like Liverpool have, winning the title with six, seven games to go, there is a knockoff. There is there is 
somewhere buried in the psyche that concept of, well, I'm here to enjoy this now and that the hard work will start next season. And that will be the case, by the way. You know, this team should be terrified of pre-season for when it comes because they will get mm-hmm. absolutely beasted from the first day and the manager will already be looking at that. But from a, from a, an individual and a, and a supporter perspective, it literally is fine to feel either or. It's fine to not be bothered. It's fine to think that it's the worst thing in the world. And that is, that's as easy as I can put the answer, to be honest. I think that that's interesting because I think the thoughts the other way that you shouldn't be bothered and football doesn't mean that much. There's this kind of a sneering condescension in it and I will self-confess that I am guilty of that way more often than I should be. And this one was weird for me last night personally just because I didn't think I would be bothered at all. I was like, I don't care. Win the title. I say it all the time, I'm not involved in kind of the football Twitter side of the football world. I just don't go in there. I go in there for work, to share articles, and I vanish. I have no, nothing about my enjoyment of the sport has to do, as it seems to be the, the case now for a lot of supporters from all over the world, is it's about getting one over on the fan base. It's almost mm. irrelevant mm. for your own enjoyment. It's just to get over on them. And I just don't watch football that way. What I found last night, I was so bothered by it. And then I sat in it this morning and I tried to write about it for a piece that will come out later today. And I think, and this might be passing the book, my botheredness is for them. Because when you look at where this team is at and where the club is at, they had a, a real chance to be on the Mount Rushmore of all-time teams. There's probably three that are there, no matter what already. Michael's is Ajax, Guardiola's Barcelona. Um, who else would be there? Is the, is the obvious third one. It's escaping me right now. Um, oh, Saki's Milan. Those are probably your three. It's the evolution of the sport. They are dominant. Um, you know, they're innovators and they dominate in their era and they define and move the whole sport with them as one. And you kind of have this tussle going over between uh, Klopp and Liverpool and Guardiola and City to, to own this era and wh- who will get that. Because you look at the teams that have come before and, and have been successful recently. You've got Jose's in, so you've got the Zidane Madrid teams. Um, you've got the the Munich treble winning team. They're all either very good for a very small amount of time or they didn't win the, the big one or they didn't dominate. Madrid didn't dominate domestically uh, a bunch of those teams. The Juve Conte teams didn't win the European Cup. And you really have between Guardiola and Klopp right now the, a, a fight going on, I think, for that, to, to clinch that fourth space, to own kind of the 2010s onwards and be the real icons of that decade. And... It's going to come down to if Guardiola wins the European Cup, that's obviously a game changer because then they have two or maybe three titles by then and they have a European Cup and Klopp has one-on-one. And it will come down to things like the points total. And I believe this team deserves to go down as that era-defining team in terms of the style and the manner in which they've gone about it. I think the joy of the football, of the conquering the FFP stuff, I think that really matters. And so I think my disappointment stems from that they don't appear to be as bothered by it now as I think posterity will be in 20, 30, 40 years when people look back at them in this era the way they look back at the Michaels era Ajax about being those innovators. And that to me is a thing where it's fine for them to not be fussed now, but I, I, I think there will come a point for all of them in 20 or 30 years being like, well, why didn't we just put our heads down and go on and really do it? Because it would have been a, a monumental total. I don't care about the, the game-to-game stuff, but I do think that the points total thing would have really mattered 10, 20, 30 years from now. That's interesting, though, when you... And I'll let you speak now, Joel, sorry, but that's interesting sorry. when you think about Van Dyke's reaction last night because he was he was quite nonchalant, smiling mm-hmm. away. I made a mistake. And, and, and also, his face lit up when he spoke about getting the Premier League at Anfield next week. And it's almost as if the players are, are not the more reasoned, but they're, they're the more relaxed in all of this. And like you say, Ollie, it's sort of their own legacy at stake, if you like. Um, I just think, I think they've, they sort of don't see this. I think it's the thing the Klopp always says, is that we're only at the start of this journey. And I think that's how they see it. And I think that if they have got questions, if they have got anxieties, if they have got worries, I think it will be about how they they end up in a place where football is is 
in inverted commas normal again because I think that's the conversation and we're going to come on to talk about it but I think that's the conversation in a in a what can hurt Liverpool sense mm-hmm. is the one that they they shouldn't be having but should at least have half an eye on yeah. this team more than you can talk about crowds benefiting uh, the lack of crowds benefiting smaller sides or whatever else this team needs crowds more than any other in world football in yeah. my opinion and that's yeah, where sure. that's where I yeah. think that they need to sort of have those questions answered quickly I'll chuck it to you in a second Joe. I just wanted to say on that point you made there Dan is that that's spot on it, it is like mission accomplished for them which I think is perfectly right this was the goal there was no other goal that mm-hmm. anything else was a bonus we all know that but I, there is a, a part of me that's like once you're there this is not going to happen again and I know that they got so close last year and then they, ideally and by the looks of it they will go on and better the points from last year I think that might be their own benchmark is to, is to show the improvement as you say Dan to show that it's the journey to break the points total is, is not a fluke but it's is such a one-off you have to have such a confluence of events where you are in the middle of your prime as an all-time great team and the league average rather than it being discussed as being the league is bad it's the median of the league is very good so they can take points off each other which is what the Premier League has this year you have to get that that certain uh, formula together to have a real shot at winning the th- uh, at breaking the points total um, so I, that that to me is a disappointment what do you think Joel? Yeah, I agree with, with pretty much all that's been said there. I think it's also important to like keep some perspective in terms of how this season has played out from sort of start to finish. I think there's a lot of games you could look back to in the first half of a season, a Liverpool win by very fine margins. Um, Sheffield United away stands out. Um, there's loads of others, you know, Tottenham away where Liverpool dominate. They win 1-0, but Lamella flashes that one wide right over death. And that, those could go in and Liverpool could drop points there. If they don't, they win those ones. Um, and then, yeah, now they've dropped points in, in two games back-to-back that they absolutely should have won. So the, the way it's happened is, is disappointing because we've got so close to this points record. But, you know, the, there are occasions earlier in the season where that might have happened anyway. I also think, you know, we talk about records and this team's place among the all-time greats. I mean, I think the thing that's been overlooked as well is that the point at which they won the title, so seven games is a record anyway in terms of games yeah. there, but the points per game at which point they became champions is unprecedented. That was the best a team has ever performed up to winning the league. So I know that isn't a standalone record in its own right, but as teams go, when they've got that kind of goal in sight, no team has ever won a title at the rate Liverpool have won a title, if that makes sense. So I think we have to kind of slightly contextualise that in terms of what's come afterwards. And I think as well, there's a lot getting spoken about the kind of the physical toll on players at the moment with the games coming so quickly, um, you know, after three months out of action. But I think as well, specifically for this Liverpool team, they've gone two years now, basically, since the start of last season in a mindset where every single league game they have to win, basically. It's all, every single one of the cup final. So I think when you're so conditioned to that and you've got this absolute kind of certain end goal in mind and that's all you're playing for every single time and suddenly that's, that's no longer there because you've done it, 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 no matter how much you want a points record, it's never ever going to be the same level of motivation and that's quite a sharp contrast to them to kind of, yeah, basically be living in that headspace for two years and then suddenly you've got these kind of weird seven games of kind of, nothingness really other than your kind of own inner drive to yeah. rack up as many as possible so I think that's definitely been a massive factor in all this I would say I think we should get onto that the why of what's happening in a second I just want to ask Dan one thing on this uh, on a point Joel said there do you think Klopp will be not disappointed about points totally he doesn't strike me as someone who would care all that much he doesn't seem to be as actively conscious of history as someone like Guardiola or even a Conte is he really does do the cliche day-to-day, week-to-week, match-to-match type stuff. Do you think he'll be a little disappointed in the lack of the uh, bleep you fight after the City game, after some of the talk of the disappointing performances? Because even the performances, if you just look at data analysis and stuff, they've been fine. They haven't been that dissimilar to Liverpool when the peak of the powers. It's the feeling. It's the mojo. It's like the, the zest of the team is just basically vanished. And the only time we've seen it is the 20 minutes against Brighton, the Crystal Palace game was obviously them at their best. And then 
when Jordan Henderson has often been brought onto the pitch is when it's kind of sparked a little something. Do you think he'll be disappointed in that? I think a lot of it depends on what conversations he's having with his team, what he's telling them, what he, what he gathers from from their vibe. You know, that, that'll that be a big one because he will definitely 100% with Pep Linders and Peter Kravitz be having conversations about who's strutting around like a bit of a peacock since we won the league, who's sort of half a yard off in training, who's who's pulling out of a couple of tackles. Forget data. Body language is going to be massive here for him. Now, we only get to, we only get to sort of analyse and critique on the things that we know. We know that Liverpool are preparing for games like they always have. You know, they travel to Arsenal the day before they train, they stay in a hotel, which is normal practice for them. But that tells you that the management team aren't, aren't knocking off. They're not saying, oh, we'll rock up on the day and see what we've got fit and see what's what. And, and I think it's important then to sort of to sort of assume that he is telling them that the standards need to be maintained and then when they're not, looking at why. And yesterday we put it down to two individual errors. Liverpool, he's seeing things in games that he likes. That's that's the other thing. The first 25 yesterday, it is one of the the best opening quarters to a game that Liverpool have had all season. Let's put that into perspective. And Joel's point about marginal victories earlier in the season is is huge and, and bears relevance. And I think that's where, if he is a little bit forgiven at the minute... It, this could literally come down to sort of 2% five minutes of concentration laps. These are how fine these margins are. How he judges that then is up to him. But when we look at him, as we know, he's one of the best man managers, but also man, person, secure in his own skin mm. that I have ever, I have ever come across. In ter- and I've not come across him just in terms of looking at him from afar. He is so secure in himself that I think he will be able to answer those questions better than I probably can, to be honest. The thing in that first 25 minutes that was so so interesting and what made it so vintage Liverpool was the stuff you talk about in terms of the preparation before the game. Clearly, they, they had decided... Probably not even midweek. Probably when they, they knew it was absolutely going to be the three at the back with the wing back system is we're going after Cedric. They move Wijnaldum basically to the left wing. They push Robertson forward. Firmino dropped out. Marnie basically played as uh, a poacher so high up the pitch, uh, but shaded a little bit to the left. They just overwhelmed the left side of the pitch, and it was very evident that's what we're going for. And you saw the combination play for the the first goal. I mean, that was just vintage. It was everything they could have wanted for Cedric isolated in space, ball down the line, bang, bang, easy finish. Um, then they switch off. And the thing that I, I find puzzling, uh, I'll throw it to you, Joel, because this is where we, we'll get to the why, talking about the mental stuff. I 100% understand the idea of they've just gone and gone and gone. And once you get to that level, which is a level we've never seen before, as you said, Joel, no one's ever won the league at that kind of clip, ever. To then have to try to drop down for a game or, or just like, allow yourself to take a, an exhale and try and go again is impossible. I mean, that's just, there's just no two ways about that. What is a little bit confusing is kind of the, the bounce back fights off, even within games. So if you have a lapse in concentration, Virgil van Dijk, why does that not kick everyone else to be like, okay, let's get back on it. And then Allison has it. Well, then why doesn't that kick everyone else to, well, let's get back on it. I understand the week to week game to game stuff. Maybe if the preparation had dipped, that clearly hasn't. And then in games like last night, the tempo didn't didn't come back. They clearly showed in 25 minutes. They get hit twice, and but there was no looking around like, okay, let's let's pick this back up. Just the professional pride. We're not going down like this. We're the champions. Let's start fizzing the ball about and moving. D- does that surprise you at all, Joel? A little bit, yeah. It's becoming a look uh, a bit of a recurring theme. This so we we've spoken about it a bit, and I'm sure we'll come onto it more in this uh, with with the water break and everything. But and not to use it as an excuse, but just more kind of an observation, an explanation. There's a, quite a lot of games here at the moment that, that you're right to point out, Dan, that that is one of the best 25 minutes of football Liverpool have played all season, to be honest, in that first half. 
um, against Arsenal to be, or the first quarter rather. Um, I thought they were fantastic against Burnley as well in that period. And even against City, they ought to have had the lead there. They've started these games really well. It's not been an issue of complacency from the off. Um, but there's this, this kind of new obstacle, basically, where they're, they're going to get 1-0 up or it's still 0-0. And then you get to the water break. And then that, like you say, Oli, that intensity doesn't come back thereafter. And I think that, that was what was most sort of difficult to get your head around last night was okay, you can't legislate for Alisson and, and Van Dijk doing what they did and giving two goals to Arsenal on a plate. But Liverpool still had well, the best like, 50 minutes of football basically to win that match from there against Arsenal. It wasn't like the game was gone as soon as it went 2-1. Um, and yeah, the second half, it was, I mean, I put in our chat, I don't know if I was just being pessimistic at the time, but it turned out to be the case. It just didn't feel like Liverpool were going to score on the night. It was just like the ball wasn't going in. Um, I think as well, something which has fed into kind of recent performances. and I, I don't want to criticise him too much because I am a huge Salah fan in general, but it does feel like because he's, he's got his golden boot thing in his head almost, he's snatching at chances that ordinarily he's just putting away. Um, mm-hmm. I think I saw yesterday, I think he's had six clear-cut chances in the last two games and, and not scored any of them, which is, yeah. yes, he does miss chances over the season, but not not that many in succession and, it does feel like he's kind of overthinking things a little bit. I think of the one yesterday, it was a brilliant move in the second half. Van Dijk does a, a massive big switch out to Trent, who does brilliantly to keep it in and hooks it back across goal. And Salah, does, he does all the hard stuff. He takes the touch, makes the space away from the defender, and all he has to do is slam it in the corner like he's more than capable of, and he kind of just chips it. And it's a good save by Martinez. Uh, it was kind of similar to the Burnley game where like Pope was getting lots of credit for making saves, but the shot gave him the chance to make the saves if that's a kind of a thing. So, yeah, that I've, I've just noticed that as a kind of another thing which I think is going on here. Um, and, yeah, obviously it doesn't help. But for me, you know, sort of... I, I, he would only be human to be kind of wondering what's going on for him in front of goal. It just feels like it's not going in. Again, I thought he was really good yesterday, to be honest, to begin with. And, yeah, it just feels like they could do the, the bounce of a ball every so often which is not happening at the moment. Yeah, the Salah one, it's eight clear-cut chances since Brighton, since his final goal at Brighton. It's eight clear-cut mm. chances missed, which is just somewhat baffling. Dan, on this, the why, why is this happening? I think you mentioned it there with, with the crowd and lack of crowd noise. I, I don't think there's ever been a team outside of maybe, I think Jose's Inter had this, and then obviously Klopp's Dortmund was kind of founded on this. It's just uh, not momentum in so much as the data community will, will you know, go raving mad if we say that there's momentum in football. But the, the idea of passion and intensity and all this intangible stuff, no, no great side has ever ridden on that, I think, as much as, as a clock team, both the Dortmund one and then this Liverpool time side. And then joy. They are so at their best when they're playing with fun. It reminds me of the, the greatest teams ever, the, the Golden State Warriors in, in basketball. When they reach this level of they're almost making fun out of you because they're so great, they know they're so great, you know they're so great, and they start just enjoying it, and it makes it all the more frustrating for everyone else because they're almost laughing with a wink and a nod that aren't we so brilliant. And there really isn't, since the title win, a great deal of joy in the football. No. Um, yeah, I, I, get, I get that. I think, I think to, to sort of put it in last night's box, to ask the question, you know, does that happen if the the Emirates is, is packed to the ram of, of Arsenal fans and a small section of Liverpool fans? I'm not sure it does. Because one of the things that you look at as to why this team has become elite European domestic champions is that they love adversity. They thrive on adversity. You know, Pep Linder says intensity is identity. This team loves being up against the cosh and sniffing blood. And I think they'd have sniffed blood a lot better if there were 50,000 to 60,000 Arsenal fans in that stadium last night who, after 25 minutes of watching their team get completely outplayed, were then starting to get on their own sides back. I think that would have drove Liverpool on more. I think that would have kept Liverpool's concentration levels up. And I'm not sure those mistakes happen. I think the other thing to to reference when I talk about them being 
sort of antagonistic is that we we never talk about it within this team. You know, the the, the top of fair play leagues, they never they never seemingly get on the back of referees apart from you know Burnley last week was it was a good example of one we could hear. But they're not, you know, they're not your typical Mourinho, Chelsea, Ferguson, United type of try and influence referees in the conventional sense. But but they they respond to to hostility in a way that champions should. You think of Villa away this season. There's mm. the whole Van Dyke giving it to the Holt end. You think of Palace. Palace is a, is a pit of hostility at the best of times because it's a small small stadium. Mm. I always remember the Andy Robertson thing last season where they draw at Goodison Park and he's he walks up to the away end and he's saying, ignore them, ignore them about the Everton fans. They feel it. They feel it, they see it, they live it. And to be a champion, you have to thrive in that environment. You have to, it almost has to take you up a gear. And they haven't got that. And then you couple that with the fact that when they go to Anfield, there's such a sense of togetherness. We're all in this together. Everyone plays a part. Well, if that's the case, they've lost 50,000 of their own then. They've lost 50,000 people who all have a role to play, who all make those 11 lads feel like they are helping them in some way. So Liverpool, like I say, have lost... They've lost a lot of intensity from their natural habitat, their natural surroundings, if you like. And that's why I think some of the stuff we're seeing is so alien to this team. Because... Because Man City just get to go through the gears and go funnel up against Liverpool because it's just eleven lads against eleven lads and the thing that needs yeah. to be won is won. And all, all the talking has been done. You know, Liverpool knock off twice and don't look like they can score against Arsenal because there's not that thing there driving them and driving them and driving them. And I think there's there's definitely a conversation to be had about how that then looks next season. But if I'm the manager, I'm, I'm, if I'm saying one thing, I'm saying, God, we need to get Milner and Henderson, if not back on the pitch, back around it, back around yeah. training as qu- quickly as possible. Because if anyone will drive those standards up, it's them too. We saw that when Henderson was brought on the other week, that the self-starting, the rhythm, like he just, he just demands it. There is nothing else allowed, uh, which is important. The Arsenal one is interesting as well, even just from their perspective. Would a manager like Arteta sit in like that for basically a training exercise? for 85 minutes, if his own fan, I mean, we know what Arsenal fans are like, if they're sat in and it goes up for, you know, it just, the whole dynamic has shifted. If we win that game last night, we are, I guarantee you we're all sitting here today saying he's got some problems, Arteta. He has got <laughs> some problems with that side. You know, the, the fact he come, on, come out last night and I like Arteta, don't get me wrong, um, but the fact he come out last night and said, you know, we've got something to build on now, it felt a bit flimsical, if I'm honest. <laughs> they didn't create anything. They didn't create a no. single chance. That's, I mean, they had the, uh, the Willock one, right, I guess, near the end. But, the, yeah, the, the goals they scored didn't come from chances created. From after No, all you've, you, you haven't beat the champions there. Let's have that mm-hmm. right. The champions have, have beaten themselves to a degree. And you've, yeah. you've, you've been the recipient of them handing you three points. Let's, let's put that in the box that it needs to go in. And I think... I think if he'd have just come out and said that, there'd have been a lot more. There'd been a lot more respect for 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 the situation he's facing right now, rather than saying, "Well, we've got this to build on." If that's what you've got to build on, then then good luck to you, mate. <laughs> Any other points you want to make on the why, Joel? Um, I think it's a really good point there about the kind of the narrative around fans and intensity and stuff, because I think there's been this automatic assumption that it will just benefit teams that go away from home because there's just no home advantage anymore. And I don't, I think that is an oversimplification. Last night's a really good example where we know how kind of hostile the Emirates can be against Arsenal when things aren't going their way. And that can make things really hard, even though they're at home, it's kind of almost kind of a hindrance if anything, because they, you know, players are not able to relax and play themselves out of difficulty. Um, and there's, there's other just small things. Like I think it's definitely true this Liverpool team almost needs to play on the edge. Um, I think they they almost like having that kind of adversity is the word Dan used. I think that's right. But like, there's so many instances this season where Liverpool have been like in a bear pit and they've absolutely thrived from it. I think of like Wolves away, which is like a classic example. Classic, yeah. A horrible Thursday night where it's raining and mm. Wolves are playing really well. 
and then the crowd's absolutely loving it. They feel like they're going to be one of the first teams to kind of take points off the champions. I think Liverpool, they hadn't lost to Watford at that stage, had they? No, it was beforehand. Um, yeah. And yeah, Liverpool prop up with that winner and it's like they feed off that energy and I think when that's not there, it is different. And, you know, there's things like last night, I don't want to go too in on referees and stuff, but there were a couple of kind of credible penalty claims again last night, I thought, where partly I don't think it gets looked at long enough because the ball stays in play, whereas if it goes out for a throw-in and they've got to kind of think about it a little bit more. But also that happens right in front of where Liverpool's away end would have been. So if you've got like several thousand kind of rowdy supporters screaming and you've got mm-hmm. Van Dyke shouting and Henderson's on the pitch straight in the referee's ear, maybe they do have a bit of a think about that and think, mm. whereas last night it's so easy to just kind of brush it aside and move on sort of thing. So I think there is a lot going on there. And as I think, I think we'll come on to, um, it's, it's going to be something that we'll need to look at for next season because it seems at least for the start for the first few weeks, it's still at the very least is going to be kind of mostly empty stadium. Still, hopefully there'll be some fans there, but we're still probably a long way off kind of returning to any sort of semblance of normality. Mm-hmm. We'll, uh, we'll get to next season as our, our final topic. Let's for now, let's move to FFP. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Always fun. Always fun to dig into the accounts and discuss UEFA. Um, the Court of Arbitration for Sport ruled that Man City's, the allegation that they artificially inflated their sponsorship agreements was, quote, not established, which means not proven, um, or was time-barred, which means the, the amount of time had elapsed. Five years. Interesting, by the way, the FFP cycle is three years. The time bar is five years, and you can hold things up in court really easy. I mean, two years in court, it's like, you know, you just go once a month. It's really simple. Mm-hmm. Um, so City are not banned from the Champions League. Um, what this means for FFP is anyone's guess at this point, it could go one of two ways. I guess, Dan, this is one of those ones where in the short term for Liverpool, in terms of City having to compete in the Champions League and fighting on multiple fronts, probably a win, but that the long-term questions... And whether kind of the, that that short term gain is worth the long term repercussions of what this could mean for FFP, uh, that would not be a win. Yeah, very much so. I think I had to sort of remind myself when this whole thing broke that City hadn't faced the transfer ban, and I'd sort of got myself into this into this mental sort of deception that City weren't going to be able to buy players. I know a few people hinted that, you know, if they don't have Champions League for two years, they, they won't get the same level of player and players like, might leave and stuff like that. I never really bought into that, to be honest. I think that they, in that sense, their plans haven't changed. Mm-hmm. But, and and they st- therefore then, they still have the same problem, just to touch on, on the team a minute, is that they've sort of, they've left it too long to to evolve, to to transition for me. They've sort of left it in a place where everything needs to happen, everything needs to happen at once. The problem with that is if no one's then governing it. And I think I think there's been there's been too too easy uh, a media line trotted out of this is the end of FFP. And I get why. And and I get why Jose Mourinho says we might as well open the circus door, as he puts it. But that's a really, really dangerous mindset to adopt. To give up is is to to at that point ask ask the question of of sort of 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 what if any um, sort of sanction based entity exists in football to, to keep the, the the playing field even even semblance of, of level you know you've got to have something there that says if you don't play by the rules to, to such a degree then you know we are gonna we are gonna look yeah and I get why people say well that's a nonsense because city didn't and they weren't punished but at the same time you know they, they have just gone through this this huge process that's dragged on for for what feels like an eternity where they were initially banned from football, from, from Champions League football for two years. 
that has to mean something. That has to mean that that is still in place in some form. That that sanction, whether it can be disproven or proven, needs to, needs to be held up against teams that break the rules because because you then if you don't do that, and this is where I think it's a little bit, I think it's a little bit harsh that it all falls on UEFA. In that, where's the Premier League in all of this? Mm-hmm. The Premier League still has to govern fit and proper owners of football clubs. The Premier League were apparently still going to have their own investigation into Man City when all of this was resolved. The Premier League needs to, to check that Everton, for example, aren't increasing their 80% turnover to, to wage um, mm-hmm. percentage. My interest is is what, what's their take? Where are they in, in all of this? Are they governing it? COVID is 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 another major factor here, Ollie. I think in that, I I worry that there's sort of a bit of an open door policy with money coming into football now because of COVID and because of the the financial disparity that's been caused. I wonder whether football globally thinks we need as much money from owners, transfers, marketing, advertisements as possible to boost the game back up to the riches that it was. If you do that, even if you try and cap it for two years, that's when I'm not sure there's a coming back point. That's when I'm not sure that you you don't end up in a, in a Super League environment where the rich look down on everyone else and, and nobody else matters. That's where I, I think you can't help but avoid a class divide. So I think it's a really perilous situation at the moment. Should Man City be happy? Yeah, yeah. Why, why not? It's not. It's not down to a Manchester City fan from Arsenal or Droyles or wherever to take on, you know, the moral implications of their ownership. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't. They shouldn't have to. They shouldn't have to be responsible for where City's money's coming from if City are creating jobs in in, in their area or City are creating a successful football team. Pep Guardiola, I have my own opinions about, which which I won't I won't hear here, um, at least not now. But I think for him to to create this us against the world mentality can go one or two ways too. <laughs> the underdogs, the underdogs, um, the concept of everyone hates us, we did nothing wrong, and watch us go now. Um, also, while claiming they they're playing in a level playing field is frankly ludicrous and I think it's dead interesting that the first team he cites in all of this is Liverpool. Because... That was really apparent in three different answers. Yeah. And then we took like Wolves in and then just like teams who are not even competing in the same stratosphere. Yeah. It's almost very Mourinho in the opposite sense. Yeah. It's very very early days, Mourinho you wondering whether this is genius or or idiocy and paranoia. Yeah. Paranoia. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll see. But yeah, I know that's a very long-winded answer to the question, but I'm not sure I answered it really either. But <laughs> the that, FFB that's my thing, I don't. I, I was like you. As soon as the thing came out, I was like, "Well, that's it. It's over." If they're going to put this two-year stay on FFP, there's no way they're going to get together. The cabal of big clubs are going to say, "Look, we tried to pull the drawbridge up with FFP. It didn't work. So let's just go back to the old system and we'll figure it out." And if it means another Portsmouth, if it means another Leeds if it means a situation like what we're seeing at Wigan, which is probably the biggest scandal in the history of the football league that still is not yeah. like constantly blitzing away in the mainstream the way it should be, then so be it. We're Juventus, you know, we're Milan, we'll just go and form a Super League, whatever. Um, I think what the issue is, it's, it's not so much the what's on the docket from FFP, it's the legislation and the investigation of FFP. Why they only have a five-year limit when it's a three-year rolling cycle is bizarre why that wouldn't at least be six or seven to give yourselves a year of being caught up in the courts you know seven is the normal statute of limitations in almost all of europe um for civil suits so why they've allowed that that trap door in that was used in this situation to to help them out and this this case is now being used to kind of like get rid of the whole concept of it when really it was an ego battle between people in Zurich and the owners of Man City where clearly there's a ton of bad blood behind the scenes there's all sorts of geopolitics going into it it's something that really isn't to do with football and they were upset about the emails and the fact that they didn't find information in their investigations before they got the leaked emails that that's what was going on there in that court case if you look at what 
that they took to the courts, it's almost laughable. It's like, you know your own rules. You know this was time barred. Why even take it to the courts? Why issue such a severe punishment? They know why they did it, to put it in the cycle that we got them, even if it gets cleared, so that everyone can look at them and say, well, there's some shady practices going on and all of your concerns are valid and this money is coming from undue stuff. Um, but I do think that, uh, I'll ask you, Joel, a conversation on FFP, where do you stand on the kind of the pulling the drawbridge versus the protectionism of, of clubs getting either uh, illicit money or money that is, you know, you've got these 100-year institutions that get can get torn up in four years by a guy who chucks money, he doesn't have it. Do, do you fall down the side of the, of the elites pulling the drawbridge up after themselves or, or the protectionism? I think with FFP, there's, I think there's a bit of a general misconception about what it was actually initially brought in to do. It's there. I'm not sure on the exact numbers. I think it's something like you can't spend, is it more than 30% that you bring in over a three-year yeah. rolling period or something like that? So 35 million euro loss, right? I think it yeah, is. so it's there mainly to kind of stop clubs basically spending at unsustainable levels. I think... <laughs> With with the city thing, I, I, I'm not sure I agree with the idea that it, it somehow completely invalidates the idea of FFP moving forward. I still think it's important. And I think I can't see a club like Liverpool, for example, whose entire model under FSG is basically based on, well, they, they said that when they came in within the first couple of years that they were massive supporters of it and that that being strictly enforced was really important for how they operate. So I don't think Liverpool and other clubs who've kind of adhered to it strictly are now going to suddenly see this as kind of, oh, our model no longer works for like the next few years. I think it's still it's still going to be there. I think to come back to the, the detail on the City thing, what's really hard to kind of ascertain at the moment, um, I think there's, there's supposed to be a further detailed document released at some point this week, possibly even today or tomorrow, on the actual findings of that whole investigation because we've all kind of responded initially to the outcome earlier this week but the actual statement by Cass like if you've read it is so uh, yeah it's very vague um, and I think what would be really interesting in terms of kind of looking to the future is what their actual reasoning is because if it is not entirely clear at the moment basically whether City did do supposed things wrong and it was just too long ago basically for the evidence to be held up in court or if they didn't actually do them at all. Um, because I think that the wording Cass uses in this statement is that the majority, the vast majority of the breaches were either time barred or not established. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it turns out that they, they actually, yeah, they did loads of things wrong, but we just couldn't punish them for it, then that kind of city would have obviously still got away with it and they'll be happy with that. Um, but at least it kind of, is more kind of a reflection of UEFA's incompetency and their own rules basically kind of stopping them there. But at least it shows that like, yeah, it doesn't reflect well on City. And um, yeah, I don't know when that comes out, but it'll be interesting because I think this week, yeah, there's been so much said, but it's, it's not, it's not as simple as saying that like, this is all kind of just nothing happened. Basically it's quite possible that things did still happen, but, basically for kind of bureaucratic sort of technical reasons, they can't actually impose the punishment that was proposed. But I think for the two year thing is interesting because that's a pretty drastic measure for UEFA to suggest like for there not to be a really pretty solid reason for that to be completely overturned. The thing on that that's doubly interesting as Dan mentioned is there was no transfer ban involved and I think the two years was almost their way of saying this is a transfer ban because that would have been 200 million in lost revenue. They clearly know City's mm. books through and through and that the, they would fall foul again if they spent big without having the Champions League revenue. So I think it was almost like a, we're not going to do a transfer ban. This is the way we can severely punish them both ways out of the European competition, which we know they cover, and it effectively would stop them from signing five, six million plus players which is what yeah. we're staring down the barrel of now yeah and also it was interesting i mean a lot of people and it's kind of fair enough given the, the money they tend to spend city but a lot of people are saying our oh, 10 million is basically the fine as a slap on the wrist it's, it's a drop in the ocean but that's not an insignificant amount of money and the fact that they're 
initial response was basically we're, we're delighted with this verdict we really welcome it to just kind of sweep aside a ten, it's still 10 million euros that i mean that's not <laughs> that's not the kind of money most clubs can just sort of wave goodbye to so i think that probably tells a little bit of its own story that they were so kind of happy to kind of accept that with no questions asked really I think your point's really good, Ollie, in that I think I think it's I think a lot of it was UEFA sort of trying to take back control a little bit. One of the one of the really interesting things that, that stuck out for me from the from the report when I when I read it at the time from De Spiegel was the line from City where they basically said, similar to PSG, if you even try anything, we will spend the fifty million you're trying to find us this was back when they, they first tried. Um, we will spend that fifty million on lawyers just tying you up in litigation mm-hmm. for how long we for however long we have to. And I think when we talk about sort of hostility between UEFA and Man City currently, I think it, a lot of it is is deep rooted. It's personal, um, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of it is on both sides. Who do they think they are? Yeah. And, and I think I think a lot of this is playing out. A lot of this has played out as a, as a personal battle between the two. Um, maybe UEFA knew, like you said, that their time constraints were, were ultimately going to rule against them. Maybe this. No one's no one's talking about this in this sense. Maybe this actually constitutes a win for UEFA. You don't know. You don't mm-hmm. know. Maybe this was this was them trying to say, you're not having this on your terms. You know, you're not sort of ruling this particular roost in the way that you want. We will, you know, we will upset and obstruct you when we can because we are the governing body. You simply don't know. The the Premier League investigation, as you mentioned earlier, Dan, is still set to come. That'll be fascinating because the Premier League regulations are so different. You can make a £110 million loss. It's a gigantic difference in the Premier League. And they have not revealed and will not discuss, confirm, deny anything about whether they even have uh, statute of limitations in their rule book. They've never even said what the punishment would be, whether it's a points deduction. Can they do some mm. kind of ban? Do they have governance over that? The only thing we've seen from City so far is the 30 grand or 300 grand fine, whatever it was from FA, and that was related to recruitment more so than the financial stuff. So that'll be interesting to see. Um, I could discuss UEFA and the possible crumble for three hours. So maybe we'll revisit that uh, in the off season. I, I would. Um, just quickly, uh, from the local perspective, we mentioned that kind of the short-term win, long-term concerns. Uh, next season, this is going to now spur City to probably go and get at least four, maybe five. Um, the positions are obvious, the full-back spots, a centre-back, maybe another player in the holding midfield role, maybe a forward. Um, but that's going to take time to bed in. There's going to be a really short preseason. They're going to have to play more games. If they don't win the Champions League next year, it's going to be all about the Champions League again next year. They're going to have to go on four fronts again. So in the short term, it probably does help Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool at least. Yeah, and they, you know, they don't have a preseason. Let's mm-hmm. look at it that way. They, they don't, they don't have time to implement other than playing. Um, so. I would imagine a lot of the business is probably 80 to 90% done um, in terms of negotiating who they want and when they can get them. But what Liverpool do have is that that togetherness, that familiarity, that voice that is still working on the players and the manager. Um, he, he knows what he requires from them. They know what he requires from them. City are going to have to sort of laying on the job with whoever they bring in and that like you say to do that with such a such an irregular calendar pattern now we don't know what next season looks like yet nobody mm-hmm. does um, and unless there is a brief going round in terms of schedules and plans in terms of how things will look and how they will be planned out in the diary then I don't think anyone can really sort of plan for what next season, how next season will take shape. Liverpool, Liverpool, for example, gear every season to peak around Christmas and towards the back end, um, sort of post-March. Mm-hmm. Now, City City don't have that that luxury in terms of 
they try and they try and stretch a season out where they they play at a consistent level for nine months. If you don't know when your your Champions League format is going to take place, when your domestic league format is going to take place, when your cup um, schedule is going to is going to take place, then how can you plan to be consistently excellent over a nine month season? It's impossible. So it it's going to be it's going to be extremely difficult for them and I'm not saying it sort of indicates why Liverpool have sort of taken a step back in the transfer market but I think it does make sense in terms of Liverpool's planning not to complicate things if you don't know how it's going to look then don't overcomplicate with players coming in players going so on and so forth and Joel, the, the City have got an awful lot of momentum heading into the summer with the fact that they're going to spend 200 million Koulibaly all the names being mentioned Martinez all that stuff. Still lost nine games. Still a ton of points behind. And Guardiola, as we're all well aware, a ridiculously demanding set of systems, not just the one, and a really intricate playing style. The, the, the idea that it's going to insert Foden and Koulibaly and off they go and it's another Centurion season with all the uncertainty that Dan's spoken about, it does seem a little bit far-fetched. It's almost like, I mean, Chris spoke about it the other day because he's wanted want to, to find some information for us. They're the bookies' favourites heading into next season right now. <laughs> mm. it, yeah, confusing. I think the thing with this whole kind of conversation around City sort of post-restart and what they look like next season that seems, to me at least, to be sort of overlooked is that this is, this is nothing new, City being really good or City preparing to spend loads of money. This has been going on for, well, basically the last decade. Um, and because we've all become so kind of accustomed over the last sort of 12 to 18 months really of Liverpool being so ruthless and so consistent in in the league and obviously winning the European Cup and the Club World Cup and the Super Cup as well the, the actual mathematics of it Liverpool shouldn't be where they are they've basically like to, to basically break into that kind of well, break the system basically to mm-hmm. to overcome City on on the relative money. I don't have the exact figures to hand, but compared to what they spent in City over a prolonged period of time, is it should have been impossible basically. So I think that's. I mean, Dan has written something for the site this week on on Klopp being Liverpool sort of base in the pack, and that, that's true because the they have had to overcome this kind of juggernaut, and it, I don't think that's going to change massively um, in terms of how they are. I, I mean, you mentioned their nine defeats there. I, I can't make sense of this City team anymore because they still, you, you still watch them win these games 5-0 so routine on it feels like, well, at the moment it is kind of like a twice-weekly basis pretty much. And I mean, God knows what's going to happen when they play Arsenal at the weekend in the Cup. I think that could be a, a bit of a mauling on the cards, to be honest. Um, but they do have this sort of tendency to, yeah, if you look at the teams that have dropped points again, yes, they've, They've not performed as well against the top six, but you know, losing to Southampton and dropping points to Crystal Palace and Newcastle and Norwich. I mean, <laughs> Norwich game, yeah. yeah, there are a load of problems there. And I think what, what is interesting, they've obviously paid massively this season for not going out and buying a company replacement, which is then compounded by Laporte's injury. Um, but they are sort of entering another sort of period of mini transition really because Pep spoken yesterday that David Silva's definitely off this is his 10th season yep. and he's, he's had enough um, and he yeah I mean he, he's not been playing as regularly but he's still I think he's scored in like his last two or three games now he's still contributing um, Fernandinho is I mean he must be 35 36 by now Aguero is obviously out for the season and yep. there's kind of talk of him moving on so there are players there who've been central to the success for such a long time as company was that it's not just as easy as saying, oh, we'll go out and buy Koulibaly or, or Phil Foden's going to step up and fill that void because, yeah, they've got to learn the system and, and these things take time. So that's not to say they can't bridge the gap. We saw Liverpool go from a kind of a mid-70 points team to a almost 100 points team in the space of one season. So definitely can be done. Um, I, think, I think you... You mentioned this before, Ollie. Guardiola's not really been in this position before in his career in terms of having to kind of win a title yeah. back. Um, so it's a new challenge for him. It's a new challenge for City. Um, I'm certainly not writing them off at all by any means as contenders for next season. But yeah, I'm not quite sort of convinced that there is a, they're going to just come back all guns blazing as much as people think. 
while going through that transition too, I mean, there's never been a team with a greater just collection of talent than the City squad right now. But taking company out was just some of the, I know it's a cliche, but some of the character of the team, some of the championship DNA, you take Silver out of that, you take Aguero out of that. Having that relentless drive every day in training and then like, yeah, like Norwich away of not having slip-ups is, yeah. that's what they've it's, been It's the Nilna lacking. Henderson thing that, that Dan mentions yeah. as well. It's not just the kind of actual quality because we know how good Foden is. We saw it against Liverpool. But it's kind of David Silva's 10 years of Premier League experience and winning stuff, Fernandinho, Aguero, obviously as well. When you take those characters out, I think it's more than just what you lose in terms of of technical and physical attributes as well. All right, let's move on to next season just quickly. Um, I'm full of us running over our allotted time and getting some kind of email. Um, We don't really know anything. And this is what's weird. This is where football really needs a football czar, is to say, this is what next season looks like. Everyone prepare yourselves. We don't know when fans will be back in the stands. The things we do know is there will be five subs. Again, we know there will be no drinks breaks next season. We do not know what the schedule looks like. We don't know when when the season's going to start, finish, when cup competitions are going to be. Are they going to have a satellite Champions League again? Is it going to be split? We know almost nothing. Um Dan, what is the, the biggest thing that concerns you in terms of the, the unknown and uncertainty about next season? I think a lot of it's tied up in what I said earlier. I think we I think this team needs to feel a semblance of, of normal um in the conventional sense, to be honest. I think it needs it needs the crowd as a reference more than most. But I think every football club and manager now will be going through the you know the, the conundrum that is having to plan a league season without knowing when games are going to be played and <laughs> and how you know there's nothing to say that next season we don't enter another state of lockdown especially in this country yeah. what what happens then you know so i think they will have a they will have an inkling um they will definitely have had conversations with the leagues um around how next season looks and when they might they might be kicking off. But Liverpool will have to plan for for defending a league title in the most unconventional manner. And that, that is that is probably the greatest challenge, like I say. Um preseason I think will be I think will be will be one of the hardest that Jurgen Klopp has ever applied. And I think it stands for the reasons that I, I referenced before is that if there is a drop off is if there is a swagger, then I think he will beat that out of them physically. Um, whenever they they return, a good thing I think for Liverpool is just completely based on nothing but but my own sort of ponderance of this is that them moving to a new training um, ground and, and training environment might give them that, that little bit of pep, that, that little bit of of zip that they're, they're in the new surroundings, they're in, you know, they're in a sort of a, a different space, if you like. Uh, are they going there for pre-season or are they delaying that all the way to next year? They're trying to get it done. It's looking okay. not looking doable, um, really, but I think they are trying to get in there. But again, this again falls on, well, when's it happening? Yeah. How long did they get sent away on holiday for? I think you need a holiday earlier, and I, and I'm not sure what the what the approach should be. Do you just keep going? I mean, it's not like the lads haven't had holiday. break recently and, and time with their family. I think you need at least the week. But I if it's only a three week turnaround, it's like, do you give them two weeks and then they come back? Particularly when he's seen the evidence of what this is. Yeah, you know? I think it's I think it's fundamental that they have a holiday. If they can, if it's safe and everything else. Two reasons for me. One. There's a lot of players that rely on going home to just reset themselves, be around their own culture, be around the family that they don't see for nine months. We forget this, but a lot of the, these people treat this as a job. They are living mm-hmm. in, and working in, in this country and in this city for no other reason than it's, it's a job to them. It's the best place that they can work and they love it and everything else. But they are not from here. They have no cultural mm-hmm. ties to here. They need to go and have that reset. I think that's massive. I think it's absolutely crucial. And the other is, we talked about them not having football for between two to three months. That's fine. 
but they were living in a really stressful environment in terms of not knowing whether the season was going to continue or not. So it wasn't like they were on the jollies. They were yeah. having to train at home. They were having to keep ticking over whilst never knowing whether the season was going to get going again or not. It was really, really draining mentally. So I think it's it's imperative that they get a week or two to just go, forget about it, go back home, go wherever you need to, be with your families, enjoy the title win, enjoy your medal. But when you come back, this starts again and it starts in the hardest of circumstances and you better stay fit because we are going to absolutely ravage you from the minute you, you step back on, on the training pitch. Joel, on the um, the fixture list now is is actually really interesting and important. I mean, it's always it's always interesting to look at and see what the running is and when you maybe face a direct title rival and it's the final one at home or away. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter all that much. You play everyone twice. Now we're in a situation where at some point they will start allowing fans back in, presumably. That's what they keep saying on the record. Um whether it's 25%, 50%, maybe as it staggers and, and, you know, they let more and more in as the season goes along. Or like Dan says, they start with fans in the stands and then we have to relock down. And so fans are back out of the stands. All of a sudden, you know, playing Bournemouth away without fans and playing away at Goodison with even 50% capacity, that it's a very different situation. So, far, you know, the, the fixture list now becomes kind of important, even though we're not still quite sure what the state of affairs will be when they release it. Yeah, it'll be fascinating to see when it comes out because if Liverpool get a set of fixtures which says they've got to go to Old Trafford, Goodison and, I don't know, Stamford Bridge in the last couple of months of the season, but they played them at Anfield first, then, yeah, the whole dynamics of it are completely changed because they, they could be playing, yeah, like you said, they could, they could have an empty derby at Anfield and have to go to Goodison obviously it happened the opposite way around this season where we went to an empty Goodison and played them in December at Anfield and won um, so that's a massive kind of unknown because it could go either way like you said we could start with a few fans in stadiums then it could just increase and we'll have full stadiums by the end of the season or it could go the other way which we obviously hope really doesn't happen but yeah it's not impossible that we get to a scenario it has to be kind of like it is now uh, for a sustained period of time. Um, I think the other just interesting factor, which I don't think has been spoken about that much, but it was Christian that raised it uh, a few weeks back, but the Champions League group stage is really different this year in terms of the setup. So whereas this season, they basically, the group stage games took place over, the period of time is the same, but they're condensed basically this season so that you basically play your first three matches back-to-back, so you have a midweek game, then a following week, a midweek game, and another midweek game, and then you have a little bit of a break, and you do three in a row straight after that. Um, Whereas they were much more spaced out this year, I think it was like two or three weeks between sort of Salzburg and Genk and stuff like that. So I think in terms of Liverpool next season, they're obviously going to want to massively improve on their sort of European performance compared to this season. That's another thing. It could work well, because as we've said plenty of times, and Klopp goes on about all the time, Rhythm is huge, so having those sort of big games every sort of three or four days, um, sort of early doors, could be exactly what they need. Um, but yeah, physically, it's it's fascinating. I do agree with Dan that they need they can't just sort of roll nineteen twenty into twenty twenty one. I think, I mean, we we did our one year podcast at Liverpool dot com. I don't know about you, Dan, but I'm sort of need a little bit of a break after this season. <laughs> We've been going at it for a year, so. If we're feeling yeah. like that, the guys have been playing that like that, not just this season, but last season as well. I think that's a good point about the, the three-month break. It, it was a break. They weren't playing matches, but you're still in a headspace of, are we going to win this title or not sort of thing. You're not getting to sort of detach from, from that environment. So I do hope and I expect that Klopp will sort of find a way to give them that, that reset between now and the start of next feels like some kind of refresher coming. I don't know about you, Dan, but like, if it's not going to be a transfer, some kind of uh, even not a coaching change, because I think his group is, is world-class, but maybe a fresh addition, just a different voice, something new. If you, if you can't change the, the playing squad to bring maybe ratchet that intensity up instantly uh, and microwave it, maybe some kind of new voice to lead a training session or two back in preseason to really push the thing along. Maybe so. Um I think I think there's definitely an element that they're looking at stuff in games as well. 
now. Mm. I know I know people think they're not. I don't I know people have, have maybe expected a little bit more. But I think last night, for example, I think there's a lot more of Fabino dropping him and the centre half splitting. Mm-hmm. Which is something when you think about when he joins, something they actually tried to to train out of him. So I think that is that is something they're definitely looking at. Whether whether there's a different identity to Liverpool next season, you know, in that sense, whether it's sort of the the city three two five that we that we see a lot when they're sort of suffocating teams, whether whether the manager has has got a a transition um of of playing style in mind in terms of freshening them up or like you say whether it's it's bringing somebody in whether someone like Vito Matos, Vito Matos um, takes on a, a greater responsibility within the squad we've seen how much he's had an effect of of being around first team affairs since he came in similar to Pep Linders whether he sort of takes that trajectory a little bit further because Klopp sees something in him. We don't know. Um, we've got to just look and 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 look at what the, the story is of, of these games now because they're in such a weird space and they, they have such strange context that we sort of have to try and dissect them. And we're doing that as writers, right? You know, we're we're trying to yeah. we're trying to tell stories based on on games of football that, that not a lot of people seemingly want to read about at the minute for for reasons that are understandable. So. We, we have to just wait and see and, and we have to kind of enjoy what's coming. And Wednesday night is going to be another huge let-off for this football club. And we should all really look forward to that and enjoy it. And if Chelsea beat us 3-0 and their Champions League prospects are boosted, nobody's going to care because this is about Liverpool's trophy lift. And, and I get why that annoys certain people. But literally, the story on Wednesday night will not be about Chelsea's push for Champions League football. It will be no matter what, Liverpool are lifting the Premier League trophy at Anfield. Finally, thank God, we are all around to see it. Hopefully we are. Yes, uh, OK, that, we'll have to conclude there. That leads me on nicely to, to a little uh, a little plug for stuff on the site. We do have a series running right now about what's next. What's next, Liverpool, tactically, commercially, once they finally lifted that trophy at Anfield. Where do they go from there? Is this the beginning of the journey? Is it the midpoint, the end? Uh, we discuss all of that from, as I said, commercially, tactics, stylistically, culturally. Uh, the What Next series you can go and find right now at liverpool.com. Both Joel and Dan have a ton of stuff up this week. I'll be writing some more stuff later today. Chris has a piece coming up that will be worth a read. Um, anything else you guys want to share, gents? No. Um, obviously, stay with us. We've got we've got everything that you need in terms of tactical context, positivity galore in these in these <laughs> semi-negative times of of this last couple of days. We will bring you lots of positivity. And interesting viewpoints around Liverpool Football Club is what I'd say. All kind of bad jokes. Um, okay, that's Absolutely. it for the Liverpool.com podcast. Uh, we will speak to you next time. You've been listening to the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo.